0: Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. We'll have a new issue of our print edition hitting the streets next week. We're hard at work on completing that. Uh, My co-host, Amber Gagarian, is away this week. Uh, so for today's show, in the wake of this weekend's nationwide protest demanding justice for Tyree Nichols, we're going to talk about police accountability here in New York City and why it's still so sorely lacking. Joining me in, in a minute will be John Tufel. John is the author of this month in Eric Adams' a column on Independent.org. Uh, he's a, a very savvy uh, observer of politics and media. Uh, here in New York, and he's also a former investigator at the Civilian Complaint Review Board, where he investigated dozens of cases of police misconduct and saw up close how the system works. Since leaving the CCRB, John has continued to monitor the NYPD. In 2021, he won a lawsuit against the city to dislodge NYPD disciplinary reports. Those reports now have to be produced in response to freedom of information requests. So we can start to uh, see the the curtain pull back and and find out what uh, these rogue cops are doing in the city, uh, even if they aren't uh, found guilty ultimately uh, in this uh, convoluted disciplinary process. So that's a real treasure trove of information that uh, John uh, has helped uh, make available uh, to journalists and researchers. Uh, who are looking into the inner workings of the NYPD. Uh, John Tufel, welcome back to the independent news hour on WBAI. Thank you, John.
1: Thank you so much. Good to be here.
0: Yes. So, uh, for, for starters, uh, your reaction, uh, to the swift firing and indictment on second degree murder charges of the five police officers in Memphis who uh, assaulted Tyree Nichols. And in contrast with the still incredibly slow and generally ineffectual uh, police disciplinary process here in New York City.
1: Sure. I mean, obviously, I think like everybody else, I'm relieved that these officers were immediately uh, arrested and criminally charged. It's something that happens uh, very rarely. I think in this case with the video evidence um, there, there was really no other option. I mean, we all saw that, those of us who saw that video, saw basically five police officers torturing a man to death. Um So I, you know, I don't think they had any options. Um, I think the trick here is that when there's not this video evidence, uh, how do we have this sense of collective outrage? And how do we get authorities to take action? Because it, it sort of seems to me that um, you know every year we've got one group of police officers who kind of uh, take accountability for the sins of all police officers and everybody gets very upset for good reason these officers then are criminally charged and you know hopefully go to jail and then that's it and everybody kind of moves on um it's we kind of do like a Shirley Jackson lottery once a year where we sacrifice police officers for the so that the rest of them can uh, continue their reign of terror. Um, so while it is good, obviously, that these officers were arrested and I hope to see them, uh, get justice. I hope to see the family get justice for this horrific incident. You know, it's not enough. It's not nearly enough, uh, when this is a s- systemic problem. And, you know, as you, right. as you correctly mentioned, um, New York City uh, is uh, is a particularly egregious example of of unaccountable police officers. So, you know, uh, right.
0: we're going to we're going to walk through the, that process in our uh, discussion here um, uh, this evening on WBAI. Uh, and for starters, uh, can you give us a little bit of the backstory on the civilian complaint review board? Uh, you worked there from 2006 to 2008 before uh, you became a private litigator. Uh, but can you take us back to sort of the modern inception of the CCRB uh, in 1993, when then Mayor David Dinkins uh, took it out of the police department and made it its own nominally independent agency?
1: Yeah, so that that's exactly correct. The CCRB was first created, I believe, in the late 50s or early 60s, and it was uh, – Housed inside the NYPD. It was basically a sub agency, a, a sub unit of the NYPD itself. And Dinkins, uh, to his credit, decided that this was not workable and wanted this to be an agency that was run and controlled by civilians, by people who weren't in NYPD uniforms. And, uh, he p- pushed this plan forward during his mayorality in the late eighties, <coughs> excuse me, and, uh, It was incredibly controversial among the police department and uh, New York City's right wing, I I guess I would say. But uh, it resulted in a somewhat infamous riot in front of City Hall. Uh, Police officers got drunk. Uh, They showed up with their weapons armed. Uh, They screamed racial epithets regarding Dinkins. Sounds a
0: little bit like a forerunner
1: to January 6th. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I got from, I mean, I was, you know, five years old at the time, but from the descriptions I've read of it, it sounds absolutely frightening. And I would imagine that the people who were in city hall at the time didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, in a way, it was even worse than January 6th in, in terms of potential violence because, uh, these, these men, and I'm sure it was almost entirely men were all armed, uh, and drunk. <laughs> I mean, they had guns. And uh, they were agents of the state. They were police officers. And as we know, police officers have a tremendous amount of leeway to inflict violence on people. Um, so, you know, I, I think it could have even been worse than it actually was. Um, but it did make, you know, all the papers. It was a big news story at the time. Uh, the idea that there would be oversight of these officers by people who are not themselves officers uh, was an incredibly controversial and, and angry, uh, angering idea to these police officers. And uh, that's why this riot happened. But uh, they were unable to stop it. It did push through the CCRB now today uh, is still an ostensibly independent agency that is run by civilians, again, ostensibly in theory. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that is how it was created. That is a, the, it is now, that is the modern day incarnation of the civilian complete review board. A right. Theoretically civilian run agency that is separate from the police.
0: Right. Now one concession that was made to the police at that time was that, uh, CCRB would carry out investigations and, and, and make recommendations, but the final decision on all, uh, disciplinary cases would be in the hands of the police commissioner.
1: Yes, that's that's correct. The to this day, and this is true, by the way, pretty much throughout the country. But uh, the oversight that the CCRB exercises is sort of oversight in name only. What CCRB does is they have investigators, which I was one years ago. Uh, they have investigators who conduct Investigations, they interview police officers, they interview um witnesses, complainants, they gather evidence, they have subpoena power, they write up reports and uh, they say their recommendations as to whether the officer should be disciplined for their behavior or not. The investigators recommendations then go to the board itself, which is comprised of board members who are appointed by the NYPD. <clears throat> that was another. Um, that was another give to the police by the NYPD, by the City Council, or by the mayor, um, and the board then decides what they want to recommend to the NYPD. So that's your first layer right there of of getting away from accountability. Uh, the board will then send their own recommendation to the NYPD. And at that point, the NYPD is free to do whatever they want with it. Uh, They can ignore it. They can um, say that they disagree with it. They can enact it if they feel they agree. Uh, And this has become, I would say, the major driver. There are other issues, but this has become the major driver of the lack of accountability for police officers in New York City. That ultimately, the the decision of whether to punish these officers in any way falls to the NYPD commissioner, um, Commissioner Sewell currently. Uh, And yeah, it's still, when I say the agency is ostensibly independent, this is what I mean. At the end of the day, it really is just the NYPD deciding uh, whether or not they want to punish their own, an inherent conflict of interest.
0: Right. And, and, uh, uh, take us a little bit in, uh, further into the investigatory process uh, when you worked at uh, CcrB in, in terms of uh uh you know how how you went about uh, your work of uh, uh determining uh, whether uh, the officers you were investigating had uh you know engaged in misconduct
1: uh sure so it was uh we would receive the complaint that was always the first step back then uh, complaints had to be directly made by members of the public. Nowadays, CCRB is empowered to investigate things like videos that they find on Twitter. They can affirmatively commence their own investigations. But back then, when I was there, it was just, um, complaints from the public. We would interview the complaining witness, uh, the, the victim. Uh, we would take their statement. They would come down. Usually they would come down to CCRB. We had these little interview rooms little tiny box boxes. Um, uh, We would then uh, interview any witnesses who were on the scene. You know, typically you want to gather as much evidence as you can before you call the police in um, because you want to be able to present the police with that evidence if you need to. And you want to know the incident well enough to know if, and when the police are lying to you and and misleading you. Uh, We would, uh, we had subpoena power. We could get medical records um, we, it, at the time, this was in the kind of dawn of the body worn, uh, footage era. We would be able to get body camera footage, but, uh, it was difficult to get. Uh, my understanding is to this day, the NYPD still makes it very difficult for CCRB to obtain body worn camera footage. Um, we would, uh, then call the police officers in. We would conduct, uh, interviews again in those tiny little box rooms. Uh, the police would be represented by a union lawyer, a PBA or a, a sergeant's union or what have you lawyer uh, who would invariably be like this bald kind of sweaty man who was would read the paper during these interviews and would occasionally speak up to say, uh, you know, uh, objection or he's not answering that or something of that nature. Uh, and, you know, we would conduct these police interviews.
0: We would, And how did the police who were across the table from you, how did they... Uh, respond to be being questioned by a, a, a mere civilian about their activities.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it was very it was uh, the reactions by the cops were as variable as, as human behavior can be. But in general, there was a dismissive attitude toward us. Um, very rarely were the cops legitimately angry with us because they just couldn't muster up the emotion to care very much um i think in most cases you would sometimes have cops who would come in and just say but well, i don't recall i don't recall i don't recall and that would be their answer to everything um
0: those cops were there others that tried to explain themselves yeah oh yeah assuming absolutely. that they would be seen in the best possible light
1: Yes, there were other cops who would try to explain themselves. I mean, in theory, if you're saying I don't recall to every question, that can be held against you as a matter of your credibility. Although in practice, that was never enough for us to get substantiations, even if we found uh the victims to be very credible. But um yeah, some cops would try to explain themselves. I mean you know and i t- i i had a st- I think most investigators would would settle on their own tactics and strategies when they're interviewing cops um i i always found it was easier to be as friendly as i possibly could to kind of imply that i agreed with them to imply that i thought their behavior was reasonable and you know especially with your less sophisticated officers they would often uh kind of see me as start to see me as an ally and then they open up and they reveal more um and they start trying to justify their behavior um and you know that can get them in into some trouble in our closing reports because once they start talking i mean you know if they really did stuff that's bad uh, you know they can't really justify that if you're breaching the patrol guide if you're inflicting violence on people that is unwarranted um, you know, you're not going to, to come off in the best light. Um, sometimes they would contradict themselves the more they spoke. They would say one thing at one point, another thing at another point. Sometimes multiple officers who would be at the scene would all have contradictory, uh, tales about what happened. You know, all of this would, would add to negative credibility findings. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of officers, are very much, uh, hostile to the process, but the ones who aren't hostile to it just don't worry about it because they know nothing's going to come of it. So, I mean, that the, there was a big variance between how they reacted.
0: And, and do, do you, did you feel like they lied fairly often? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We
1: would get, we would find. Yeah. They would lie a lot. Um, absolutely. I mean, when you've got one officer telling one story and five civilians all telling a different one and the five civilians are all consistent you know you could pretty much you can imagine who's telling the truth in that situation um i once had one matter this was actually a pretty uh egregious one but I i once had one matter where uh three officers had allegedly gone into a guy's apartment out of nowhere and just started searching it. This guy was sitting on his stoop, and they had come up to him and kind of hassled him a little bit and then went into his apartment and purported to find drugs in his apartment. Now, whether they planted those drugs or not was outside of the purview of CCRB, but what was inside of our jurisdiction was whether or not uh, this search was a, a legal or illegal. And uh, this this guy and several other witnesses who were present all said the cops just <clears throat> barged in, just made themselves at home in this guy's apartment and started tearing it apart. I had two cops. Uh, so out of the three cops, I had two cops tell me, no, no, no. He told us to come in. He said, come in, search around, look around. I mean, that in itself is kind of crazy to think because theoretically, this guy had drugs in his apartment. Why on earth would he just be inviting these random officers in? <laughs> then we have this third officer, and I think the third officer was probably a newbie. He was a PO. The other ones were more higher ranking. He didn't know really what to do in this situation, and he gave him up. He said, I, I don't know what happened. I saw them go in. I did not hear any consent given to go in. Um... I I'm not sure why the officers decided they needed to go in and he kind of gave up his fellow officers. And, you know, just as an example of how um oh, I bet he got some hazing back at the precinct station. Oh, I'm sure. They made his life a nightmare. I'm sure. Um Although back then closing reports weren't public records. So who knows if they ever even found out, but um what eventually happened with that case is I very much wanted to, substantiate the officers for false official statement and my supervisors wouldn't let me do it. Uh They thought that it was not enough. They thought all of that evidence that I had was not enough to, to substantiate the false official statement. So I think what wound up happening was I was able to substantiate the, uh the illegal apartment search, but the lie to CCRB just, it wasn't taken seriously. And I, I was not able to try to get them disciplined for that.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah. I, um, And so what well, what would what would happen is that you'd finish your investigation? At, 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 I mean, there was a whole layer of what a, a departmental trial. <clears throat> and, yeah, well, we we would
1: finish the investigation. We'd issue uh, a lengthy, usually lengthy closing report that detailed our findings and our recommendations. The board would the board panels of three would then vote on whether to accept our recommendations or not. Uh, again, this is another layer in the process. Um, there's been some great local reporting, um, maybe by, uh, New York State Focus or Gothamist, uh, has done some reporting on the, uh, the panels and how if you get an NYPD officer on your panel, they're much more likely to reject any substantiated findings than, uh, than if you don't get an NYPD officer on your panel. Um, after that, Let's assume that then it goes to a, uh, let's assume that it's a serious misconduct and the board recommends charges. Charges are for the most serious forms of misconduct. That is the CCRB telling the NYPD, look, we want you to hold a trial on this matter. The trials are held within the NYPD, which is like the craziest thing you can imagine that the fact that it's the NYPD holding these trials, but the judges are themselves employees of the NYPD. So obviously, there's going to be somewhat of a bias there. Um, I have sat and viewed these trials. Uh, I was astounded by what I saw. Uh, it's a process that is extremely biased toward the NYPD. Um, and at the end of that trial, that judge will then issue a decision. Um, let's assume that the judge finds that misconduct has occurred and believes that the officer should be fired. That is not the end of this process. Then it goes to the, uh, NYPD commissioner, right now commissioner Sewell, who then decides whether or not she wishes to uphold that punishment, uh, that was found by the judge, or if she wants to reject it. Uh, and that, that is her sole and complete power. No one can infringe on that power by New York City law, um, which is something that obviously we are trying to change because it really is so egregious. But uh, that is how the process goes. There are so many levels and layers at which an officer who has committed misconduct, even very, very bad misconduct, uh, violence, inflicting serious injuries, um, death even in some cases, uh, that is uh, the the there are so many ways that that officer can get off the hook. I mean, it's just baked into this process. Right. still so very few officers are actually disciplined.
0: Right. Something like seven NYPD officers have been fired in the in the last decade. I mean, and sometimes they get docked uh, uh, some vacation days, which um, I'm, I'm sure they uh, feel is unfair, but. Uh, most people would see as a slap on the wrist. uh,
1: Right. Well, I mean, look, when you look at this in the light of like, for example, Tyree Nichols, I mean, I know at least one of those officers had a history of violent behavior in the past. And I think the bigger issue here is like, this is not about some nebulous form of justice, right? This is not about feeling good that an officer lost some vacation days. This is about preventing serious violence from happening in the future. So if these officers have shown that they are unable to properly wield this immense power that the state has given them, this monopoly on violence, that why should they still be on the streets with weapons uh, patrolling? I mean, that is going to, uh, that is ultimately the thing that leads to further incidents of violence that just get worse and worse and worse. Um, and you see it in the records of these officers. You know, uh, I know you and I were talking earlier about Lieutenant Eric Dim, who, uh, is like notorious as having the most substantiated CCRB, substantiated allegations on record. And Dim had a 20 year career. He was a lieutenant. I mean, he kept rising through the ranks um, right now, since him, since him retired, voluntarily retired, I should say. Um, there's a new and op-
0: retired to uh, full pension and all of that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Full pension and everything. Um, you know, now that he's retired, there are other uh, uh, NYPD officers who are taking up his legacy. Who have massive amounts of, of substantiated misconduct allegations and who are still rising through the ranks. I think, um, Oh my gosh. Who is the new record holder? Uh, I believe it's an officer named, um, uh, Oh yeah, Timothy Bravacos, uh, who right now is 28 substantiated allegations. Uh, he's a lieutenant, of course. So he's risen through the ranks. He's in the seventy-first precinct. Has a hundred and twenty-two allegations of misconduct against him. I mean, how is this man still holding this job?
0: You know. And, and, and where is the seventy-first precinct?
1: Seventy-first. I actually—it's in Brooklyn somewhere, but I'm not sure exactly where. Uh, I could look it up really quickly and let you know. But
0: yeah, well, uh, for, obviously, for any of our listeners uh, in the coverage area of the seventy-first precinct. Uh, uh, be on the lookout for uh, this officer. Um, that's an incredible amount of complaints over 120. Yeah. Crown, that's
1: Crown Heights and Prospect Lefferts. Um, actually, where I lived years ago, but, uh, yeah, if you go to 50-a.org, uh, which is a website that has tremendous amounts of information on NYPD officers and their records, uh, you can read more about Bravacos. It's B-R-O-V-A-K-O-S. Uh, you can read Uh, some of the closing reports on cases that he's been involved in. Uh, You could see his picture. uh, You could see his prior assignments, his salary, any lawsuits that he's been involved in, um, that the city had to settle with taxpayer money. Um, So, yeah, I mean, he's now the new record holder, I believe, now that um, DIM has retired.
0: Right. And and, uh, I want to talk more about those uh, closing reports in in a minute. But uh, just one other thing about the, the CCR the disciplinary process uh, that you wrote about in uh, your latest article for the independent, which is called T- time to scrap the useless civilian complaint review board. Um, in this article uh, that's online, uh, you describe how uh, commissioner teaching uh, Sewell uh, it, it is very openly um, touting the fact that, that she's accepting fewer, um, penalties for uh, misbehaving officers than, than even her predecessors and has uh, scrapped, uh, I guess, something of a gentleman's agreement that was uh, reached a couple of years ago to try to uh, create some right. consistency in, in uh, what sort of uh, punishments were meted out to rogue officers.
1: Yeah. Gentlemen's agreement is a good way to to describe it, actually. So actually, uh, Hellgate, uh, I love Hellgate. They have a good piece today uh, on this and they have some statistics. Um, I mean, for uh, for clarification or as an example of how bad this has gotten um, in 2021, the NYPD adopted the CCRB's recommendation in 62% of cases. Now that's a little misleading because that includes all cases, including very mild punishments, where the CCRB just says, you know, put it put a note in his file, basically. Um historically, there's always the more serious cases are almost always uh rejected or reduced by the police commissioner. But regardless, so 62% in 2021. Sewell now has dropped that number down to 36% of accepting CCRB recommended penalties. That means that only 36% of the time does the NYPD actually enact the recommended uh, disciplinary measure that's put forth by the CCRB. I mean, it's a complete joke. And uh, alluding to what you were just mentioning and uh, that I wrote about in my column, it was just a month ago. I believe it was just a few days before Tyree Nichols was murdered. She, uh, Keisha Sewell, was bragging about how she is refusing to accept the disciplinary findings of the CCRB. Quite literally, bragging about it, um, saying that she, unlike previous commissioners, she is uh, drastically reducing the amount of discipline of police officers. Now we talk about. Wanting to prevent future Tyree Nichols from happening, right? Just like we talked about George Floyd, uh, just like we talked about the uh, people who have been killed, Eric Garner, Sean Bell, here in New York City. There are so many more that I can name. Um, But we talk about wanting to prevent those. What on earth do we think is going to prevent those if not increasing and not reducing discipline? I mean, what is going to happen here is we're going to have another horrific incident of violence. It's going to get caught on video. Everybody's going to say, Oh my gosh, how could we have prevented this? Well, this is how we could have prevented it. And we're just not doing it. I mean, it, it's just not happening. The, the NYPD could, I, I, I can't stress this enough. I know I'm getting like mad, but it's something that makes me mad. I mean, the NYPD commissioner is boasting, boasting. That she is refusing to punish officers. And this is especially egregious because two years ago, the in the light of the George Floyd murder, the NYPD and the CCRB entered into a um entered into what you referred to as a gentleman's agreement to have this thing called the disciplinary matrix, right? And the disciplinary matrix was supposed to be able to you were supposed to be able to look at what the officer did. Look at the matrix and say, okay, this will be the punishment. So that's all CCRB is doing here. I mean, the matrix itself is tremendously flawed for reasons I could go into, but all the CCRB is doing here is they're pointing to these, these dots on the matrix and saying, look, this is the punishment we agreed on. The NYPD and CCRB agreed on. And Sewell is saying, no, I no longer want to follow this. It's my way or the highway. So we are just any any reform that it, that was supposed to happen after George Floyd was murdered when everybody pretended to care about police discipline and police reform a little bit uh, has been walked back. The same you see with Eric Adams, you know, we got rid of the anti-crime units. Eric Adams brought them back with a new name.
0: You mean the street crimes units? Yeah,
1: the the street crime, the same sort of units that that murdered um, Tyree Nichols. Um, you know, Bill, Bill De Blasio got rid of those. Um, Eric Adams brought them back, except renamed them as neighborhood safety teams. You know, we've we've gone backwards. We we've truly gone backwards, um, and it's
0: unfortunate and it's sad. Right now, um, in the second half of the show, I want to talk with you more about your successful legal crusade to force uh, some of this misconduct. Uh, into the into the light of day um but we're we're going to uh take a a short uh, music break here in a minute and and then we'll continue uh uh talking with John Tufel and we're also going to be uh joined uh by journalist uh Michael Hayes uh who uh ha- has a a book coming out this month about uh uh De Blasio's uh failed attempts to rein in the NYPD and and why it proved so difficult uh, for uh, that mayor to make even modest reforms but first uh, a quick music break That was greetings by Hamza El Din, a Nubian musician, uh, a Nubian music- musician from Upper Egypt, which is actually in the southern part of Egypt near Sudan. Uh, my colleague Amber Gagarian, a co-host on this show, she is uh, out this week. Uh, she's uh, continuing uh, her visit with extended family in Egypt and was unable to join us this evening, uh, but she's here in spirit uh, with through the music. Uh, so. Uh, welcome, everybody, back to the Independent News Hour here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of The Independent. And we've been talking uh, with former CCRB investigator John Tufel. Uh, he's also filed uh, and won a historic lawsuit against the N- NYPD. And we're also going to be joined in a minute uh, by Michael Hayes, uh, a journalist who has a book uh, coming out. Uh, in February, called The Secret Files, Bill de Blasio, the NYPD, and the Broken Promises of Police Reform. But before we can continue uh, with our guests, I want to encourage everyone who can do so, who has the means to do so, uh, to support this station, to support WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, we're in our 63rd year on the air here in New York. Uh, you have all sorts of shows, including this one, that you're not going to hear anywhere else. You're not going to hear this kind of coverage on uh, NPR or certainly any corporate uh, radio outlets. And we are able to stay on the air year after year because of supporters like yourself. You can call 212 Again, that phone number is 212 209 2950. Or you can go to give number two dot uh, wbai dot you can make a one time contribution $15 $25 $50 $100 $500 if if you have it uh or you can sign up as a WBAI buddy a monthly sustain, sustainer uh making an automatic uh contribution each month uh, through your uh credit card again you can call 212-209-2950 and say i want to become a WBAI buddy uh, the many hundreds of buddies uh, who chip in every month uh, are really the financial bedrock of this station that give it a certain amount of, st- of financial stability from one month to the next. Uh, so if you can become a buddy, that would be incredible. You can do that for as little as $10 a month. You can become a 15 or 20 or $30 a month WBAI buddy. That helps even more. And in particular, we are trying uh, to uh, replenish our tower fund, uh, WBAI Broadcast. Uh, with its uh, transmitter and antenna on top of four times square right in the middle of Manhattan with a signal going out across the greater New York city metropolitan region. But uh, we are behind in our rent payments on the tower. It costs $17,000 a month to be on the air from up there at, on four times square. Uh, it's New York. The rent is always too blank, blank high, but we've got to pay the rent. we got to keep that tower fund, uh, uh, strong so that uh, we don't fi- fall uh, behind in our rent payments. 212-209-2950, please help keep WBAA on the air. Please help keep the Independent News Hour on the air and all the other great uh, news and public affairs and cultural and music programs that you hear on this station uh, every day, week after week, uh, month after month. It all starts with the support of our listeners. 212-209-2950. So uh, moving back into our conversation, uh, uh, we uh, John Tufel's been describing sort of the inner workings of the civilian complaint review board. Uh, and uh, we're going to hear more from him, but we're also joined uh, by uh, Michael Hayes, author of the secret files, Bill de Blasio, the NYPD and the broken promises of police reform. Uh, Michael, welcome to the independent news hour. Hey, John,
2: thanks for having me.
0: Yes. So, uh, can can you give us a uh, a quick synopsis of, of of what your your book is about? The title certainly uh, uh, suggests you have uh, some interesting revelations to share.
2: Sure. So the the book is titled "The Secret Files: Bill De Blasio, the NYPD, and the Broken Promises of Police Reform." Um, it focuses on De Blasio's time as mayor, but specifically on the years after Eric Garner was killed in 2014, and up until he left office last year. Um, after Garner was killed in July 2014, police accountability, in my opinion, in New York City, really became the issue for the de Blasio administration. And this happened in no small part because the mayor himself said that they would use the Garner tragedy... As a reason to transform the NYPD into a department that was more transparent and accountable to New Yorkers.
0: And and he was facing uh, intense uh, street protests uh, from the uh, burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement as well.
2: That's absolutely correct. The months after the Garner tragedy uh, personally and, and I, I think I speak for a lot of New Yorkers. One of my most indelible memories from those months are just tens of thousands of people in the street, uh, calling for justice for Eric Garner, calling for Officer Daniel Pantaleo, the officer who killed him, uh, to be fired from the police department.
0: So, so what happened to this, uh, uh, momentum for, uh, change to the NYPD?
2: Well, in the book, I I focus primarily on what became the major fight over police reform in NYC during these years, how to reform and improve the NYPD's police disciplinary process and how the department policed its own uh what i found is because of politics and the awesome power of the NYPD the city fell short and continues to do so when it comes to holding police who commit egregious misconduct fully accountable for their actions
0: right and can you give us a sense of sort of where the NYPD like sort of uh, draws is its cultural political uh power to to consistently thwart any sort of uh, real oversight uh, i mean in terms of the media politicians uh the the legal fraternity uh if you can give us a sense of sort of this uh web of uh relationships the nypd is a mesh gen that protect it well
2: you, you you listed off some 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 major points there john about why they're so powerful but um uh forgot one and and that's money. The NYPD's budget, uh some might call it bloated, uh it is uh enormous, eleven point two million uh, excuse me, billion dollars annually, uh last time I checked. Um that that's uh literally the budget that Eric Adams has proposed for the NYPD uh in the next fiscal year so it, it that's what it really boils down to they have more money than
0: everybody else but uh, how how are they able to get uh, so many other you you think it's solely the money that that uh that's in their budget that that moves this i mean they they seem to to have a, a sort of enormous uh, cultural capital uh, that they're able to uh, draw on any time they uh claim that they're under uh, unfair scrutiny no i didn't mean to suggest that it's it's just the money
2: you you mentioned um their political power and 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 one major example there is the uh, political power and the lobbying power of the police unions in the mm-hmm. city which have been uh filling the coffers of elected officials going back for for decades now and really um uh, getting a lot of bang for their buck there in terms of legislation uh, that is pro-police and, and, and certainly not uh, pro-police accountability.
0: Right. And and, and I, I recall back in the de Blasio era, it, at the same time, there was a, you know, a push for more accountability. I think in 2015 uh, the city council made a push to hire over a thousand new police officers led by, ostensible progressives like uh, Melissa Mark Viverito, the council speaker and, and de Blasio ended up out sort of outbidding uh, Melissa Mark Viverito and ended up hiring almost 1300 new cops. And this was only one year after the Eric Garner tragedy. What, what you, what accounted for all of that?
2: Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. And that that's happened uh, a number of times uh, over the years where, where, um, within just it it just happens during the budget negotiations um more cops get added uh to to the nypd rosters based on on the money that that's allocated their their way um 2015 being uh the most recent example and and um and that that was a, a a consistent consistency uh during the de Blasio years where the, the, NYPD never saw any major cuts to its budget, despite what he, he may have said during the end of his tenure about, uh, defunding the police that never really happened.
0: Right. Well, and that was basically some accounting gimmicks in that final year when they had the massive George Floyd protests, uh, what they sort of moved the, the funds for the school safety agents, uh, uh, from the police department to the Department of Education, but I mean, kept the same 5,500 school safety agents, for example, in the schools.
2: Yeah, accounting gimmicks is is as as <laughs> technical way to d- describe it um, as as anything. The the school safety agents being one example. The the um, way they played with the overtime numbers being another example.
0: Right. That overtime budget keeps on uh, growing. It, it's estimated, I think it's going to be over $800 million this year.
2: Yeah. And and uh, it's sad to say that it's, it's almost not worth reading what the overtime budget is. I know I'm starting to sound really cynical here, but uh, the point I want to make is that whatever uh, line item they write on the page, the NYPD is going to blow over that number substantially and and just spend that money uh without uh any sort of oversight
0: right and and one other thing i mean uh that's a little bit uh cynicism inducing is the the way the police officers uh pensions are, are calculated in part is on their earnings in their final three years uh in uniform and and often those uh, veteran cops really try to max out their overtime in their last three years uh, in order to, to get, you know, a higher uh, pension payments once they retire. So, I mean, they're not only uh, racking up the money now, but they're, you know, sort of uh, setting themselves up for bigger paydays later when
2: that's exactly right. And, and uh, I, I won't try to do the exact calculations on air and put your, uh, Listeners to sleep, but they're they're doing things like that um, at the expense of their their younger, less experienced, entry level officers coming up with rules like that as part of their their um, union contracts, um, and in their negotiations, agreeing to pay, for example, a, a new cop less money so that they're able to to get the city to make those concessions.
0: Right. Um, right. The payoff is for the ones who uh, are loyal and, and and stick around for a while. Uh, um, I want to bring uh, John Tufel back in the conversation. John, you, you still there?
1: Yes, I am. Hi, John. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Good to hear from you.
2: Hey, John. Nice to hear from you
0: too. Yeah. I can't so, wait
1: to read your book. I, it sounds fascinating.
0: Thank you. Um yeah, I'm going to be talking after the show, see if we can get uh, John to review this, uh, review this book. I mean, it sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, w- one thing I want to ask you about, uh, that I think is a, a very inspiring note in this conversation is the role you played in, in, uh, forcing, uh, the city, uh, and the CCRB to, to cough up all, uh, these reports, uh, that uh, substantiate a, a lot of abuses and, and they're giving us uh, some picture of, uh, you know, uh, how the department operates and who the, the worst of the worst are. Uh, can you talk about uh, this lawsuit that you pursued and won in 2021?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I had sought closing reports, which are, as I was talking about before, the final, um, basically document prepared by the investigator that details their findings, the evidence, the interview summaries, all of that. Uh, I had asked CCRB to provide me with some of those through New York's Freedom of Information Law request. Um, I knew that they were going to deny it, um, but after 50, or um, sorry, after the public officer's law uh, that now presently the statute's escaping me, but after it was uh, repealed, um that shielded police officers from police records from scrutiny i thought that maybe i would have a better chance at a lawsuit if they did deny me the reports so they denied them to me i appealed uh, they denied my appeal um i brought a lawsuit because i thought that these closing reports um needed to be I, i thought they were vital for people to kind of understand the daily, uh, reality of, of civilian encounters with police officers, because when all you hear are these figures or all you hear is, oh, the officer was exonerated or the officer's misconduct was substantiated, you don't really know what that means, right? So, um, I did sue, um, we were getting ready to go to court and I received a phone call from the, um, from the city's, um, uh, Excuse me. From the city, uh, I believe it was the comptroller's office who called me and they said that we want to, um, settle this case with you. And I said, Oh, great. Wow. Uh, I said, what are the terms? And they said, Well, we're well, we have decided, the city has decided that we are going to, um, we are going to provide these reports now as a matter of course. Um, so we drafted a settlement agreement. Um, they agreed they would now start providing them. And, uh, since then, they have provided them. And, uh, in fact, CCRB itself now publishes the reports on their own website. Um, they're available from in a multitude of places. The NYCLU has done some fantastic work. Uh, Legal Aid in New York has done some that uh, they also sued, uh, around the same time I did. And they've done some fantastic work with these reports too. There's various databases out there. Uh, 50a.org uh 50-a.org um so yeah we these are now available these are publicly available documents where people can read what these officers claimed happened what the victims claimed happened what evidence was amassed and you know people can make their own conclusions as to uh whether these officers are being punished enough or not
0: right and and uh we we have just a couple of minutes left here uh I mean one of the upshots of this is that uh in in the past you had officers like daniel pantaleo for example the who was the um the main culprit in the um uh killing of eric garner he had had a number of complaints uh filed against him for very violent behavior but none of this was publicly known and his terrible record didn't come to light until after he killed eric garner
1: right and that's yet another example of how records of violence and misconduct ultimately lead to the deaths we've seen like tyree nichols like eric barner um like george floyd uh these are not these don't just come out of nowhere and if we're not firing these cops if we're not getting them off the force uh they're just going to keep happening right and